Hi guys, and welcome to a new episode of Tapis Rouge. I'm your host, Guillaume Cauchois, still in my dressing room, and today's shout-out goes to LJ Marles, wonderful circus artist from Birmingham, who was the first one to find out our guest today, Kyle Craigle. I've known Kyle for a very long time. He started the high school program at the National Circus School of Montreal when I was about to finish the professional program, and I got the privilege to see some of his evolution from teenage gymnast to a truly incredible circus artist. Since then, Kyle made a very special mark in the entertainment industry, and I'm so excited to share his fantastic journey with you guys. So here he is, the absolutely fabulous Kyle Craigle. Kyle, welcome to Tapis Rouge. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> nice. So you're on tour break now? I am. I just got back from Kuwait, which is in the Middle East, about 36 hours ago. Had a 24-hour itinerary to fly back from a run of like, I think we did about 70, 75 shows in nine weeks. Oh my God. Yeah, that's solid schedule. Yep, you know, that's what it is. We were doing eight shows a week. Most of the time we had a couple of 10 show weeks too. So nice. And you are the hand balancer on Oval at the moment. I am right now. I'm performing an act in the show called Orvalio. Um, it's a Portuguese word for morning dew, like the, okay. the water droplets on grass. So okay. my structure, my structure kind of resembles grass. So that's the inspiration behind that. Um, I'm also a backup clown on the show i'm back up for one okay. of the, the comedic characters not quite clown it's more of a physical comedy role i guess mm -hmm. and i'm also back up for the contortion number so i back up another solo in the show also can you do three acts can you do handstands character and contortion you mean in the same show yeah um i don't think no the track that track isn't possible um but i've done both acts in the same show before so like the hand mounting act is second mm -hmm. in the show and then the contortion act is the first act at the top of intermission. So I've done it before where you run on stage, do hand balancing, run off, switch makeups, run back on stage, do another solo. Crazy. And what, what do you take your bow as when you do that? Um, as the, the second character, as the spider. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty solid. Yeah. I'm sure there are people wondering like, what happened to him? Like, where's the other <laughs> character? But... And for how long have you been working on the show? So on Ovo, I originally joined in 2016. Um, however, we're going into like my fourth year on the show. So I did about two years on the show and then I left, took a break, did other things. And now I've been back post pandemic for about a year. We started rehearsal exactly a year ago. Nice. Before your whole Cirque career started, why don't you take us from the beginning? Like, how did you get into circus? What inspired you to start wanting to be an artist? And how did you get in touch with Cirque in the first time? So there's a, a really big long epic saga uh and i can chat an ear off so i'm going to try my best to keep it relatively <laughs> nice, but also filled with interesting details that the audience will want to hear um so i come from a, a family of classic sports my okay. dad um grew up playing football in high school and played golf in college and i have an older brother and he kind of took after that so growing up as a young kid my brother was playing flag football and baseball and was also golfing and ended up actually um on a pitching scholarship through college. Okay. And where are you guys from? Uh, we're, I'm from Houston, Texas originally. Both okay. of us were born there. 
So we're living in South Texas. We're also sports are huge i mean sports are huge worldwide but in mm-hmm. the states like football and baseball it's like yeah part of the, the american culture so when i was younger i was in t-ball and flag football and soccer and i just hated all of it honestly <laughs> i didn't connect with any of it and um, there was one summer that my mom took me to a gymnastics camp okay. and i really liked it so every summer I would go back and do the gymnastics camp, but we had never really considered it as a full-time extracurricular before. And one of the years, um, I had a friend that could do the splits. So, and keep in mind, this is like recreational gymnastics yeah, camp, yeah, right? Okay, like we're like yeah. swinging on a rope into the pit, not like okay. actually training. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to try that. And it worked. So I showed. So you did coach. a split right away. You're like, hey, I can yeah. do a split. Yeah, like I saw a girl doing it and I was like, I bet I could do that. Middle splits on the floor. Wow, crazy. And I showed my coach. I was like, hey, look at this cool thing that I can do. And I, I actually remember this moment really clearly somehow. I was six years old, about to turn seven mm-hmm. the next month. And we were waiting in line to swing from a mat on a rope into the pit. And I just said, hey, look at what I can do. And I did a cartwheel and then like slid into a middle split after. And she just kind of looked at me and said, hey, Today, when we're done, stick around after. I want to see you individually. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Like this little mm-hmm. bumbling <laughs> six-year-old running around. Yeah. So she keeps me after and ends up calling over the men's team head coach that was running the whole competitive side of the men's program at the gym at the time. Mm-hmm. And she goes, hey, Kyle, this is Coach Gregory. I want you to meet him. He's going to have you do a few things. Uh, okay. Meanwhile, I don't know this at the moment, but my mom walks in the lobby and is looking at me alone. All the kids are gone and the competitive team is about to start training in like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm alone on the floor with this older Russian man. And he yeah. was spotting me doing push-ups <laughs> and pull-ups on the high bar and splits. He just made me do a couple of things. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And he takes me back into the lobby and looks my mom in the eye and says, your child has a fabulous body for gymnastics. We think that he would be absolutely great. And if you're interested uh, in having him try the competitive team, um, he can start tomorrow. The next day. Wow. Tomorrow. Yeah. The next day they were like training, you know, the little lull in the summer in Uh between competition season and kind of like the warm up for competition season in the fall Um, for viewer or for listeners. Sorry that don't know the gymnastics season is like mid end December to like May, June ish in the States. Mm hmm. Uh, and this was late summer. And so my parents were kind of just like, okay, um, how much is it? What does the schedule entail? What's happening? And they ended up taking me. And from there, I ended up competing gymnastics for seven, seven and a half years. Wow. How did you feel moving from t-ball and football into gymnastics? Because it's um, demanding training too. So how did you feel if you're comparing the classic American sports, baseball, football, and like just getting into more serious gymnastics training? I was so young. All that I knew was that I didn't hate gymnastics. Like I hated the rest of the sport. And that sounds really (laughs) intense, but it's true. I just wasn't enjoying myself doing that. And then in gymnastics, I was enjoying myself. I was improving really quickly. All of a sudden I was quite good for my age, even though Mm. I had just started, like I caught up really quickly with the other kids my age who had been training for probably just a year and a half or two before I started. Mm. Um, And so I, I loved it started competing. And of course, um, I was doing state competitions and regional competitions from the time that I was seven. I actually went to a really big gym, 
Um, the head of the gym, his name is Kevin Majika, and he was the 2004 mm-hmm. and 2008 Olympics men's team head coach oh, for the U.S. Okay. So we actually had a lot of iconic gymnasts come through. Mm-hmm. Like Jordan Javchev has like spotted me on rings before oh, because wow. he was my coach. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Like <laughs> because my coach wasn't there. So he was filling in that day because he was training at our gym. Like it's oh, wow. it's totally wild actually thinking about it. So we start competing and we have this competition in Las Vegas called blackjack it's an annual meet mm-hmm. and one of the moms goes hey let's go see a circus Soleil show mm-hmm. sure okay yeah i've seen the circus before i had seen ringling brothers barnum and bailey that was probably my first circus but like was touring through houston um and so we went and saw miss dare liked the show it was great you know got my mask from merch mm-hmm. didn't think classic much about yeah <laughs> it. yeah kind of the classic first experience didn't think much about it but liked the show the next year, my family and extended family, they were doing a family vacation in Orlando at Disney World. And my uncle and aunt actually used to travel to France a lot. So they love Paris. My uncle speaks a little bit of French. And therefore, wanting to see a Cirque du Soleil show isn't a far skip from, you know, kind of a combination yeah. of yeah. that European culture, the French culture, French Canadian culture and U.S., so he bought our family tickets and I I'll never forget this my mom told me okay son like it's it's time to go we're gonna go see the Cirque du Soleil show and I said mom I, I'm just so tired my feet hurt we've been at the park all day I was nine years old at the park <laughs> all day I don't want to go and she looks at me and she goes Kyle your uncle bought us tickets so we're gonna go to the show mm-hmm. great okay go into the show walk into the theater the lights turned down my life changed from that second yeah right away you felt something like you're hooked right away oh yeah, yeah yeah there's something so magical and i don't know what it was and i don't think i ever will like the difference between seeing mystere and lanuba but when i sat down to see lanuba pre-show announcement happens the show starts running i was just like enveloped and mm. enamored with this beautiful style of art and i walked out of the theater i told my parents that i wanted to work for Cirque du Soleil one day went down to the boutique bought a Diablo because it was my favorite act in the show, the four little uh, Diablo yeah. girls <laughs> and bought a DVD. And I started teaching myself tricks that night at my uncle's timeshare because my brother somehow learned how to spin a Diablo at one point in elementary school. Okay. So he showed me how to spin it. And once I started spinning it, I started, and of course I, I would, I was already doing the acrobatics. Like I could do a back mm-hmm. handspring. I could do a forward roll and that style of Diablo is really acrobatic. So I just started learning the routine. And the more that I started to discover Cirque du Soleil and circus, like through YouTube. And so YouTube really became a thing probably 18 months to two years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So through YouTube and Cirque du Soleil DVDs um, and just a little bit of Cirque knowledge that my other coaches had. Because that previous gymnast who were like connected with Cirque or stuff like that. Exactly. Maybe they knew some of the bridges, like how from gymnastics you can transition into Cirque this way or... Exactly. And so actually my coach, Kevin Majika, the head coach that I was speaking about at the gym, he used to compete gymnastics with Matthew Sparks. Okay. When they were both international gymnasts. And so at the time, Matthew Sparks was head coach at Lanuba. Oh, so okay. a few years later, I was like getting to watch backstage trainings and all this kind of stuff. And I think that my parents thought that it was just a phase. And I, I never grew out of it. And the more that I discovered circus, the more I kind of started to fall in love with it and fall out of love with gymnastics. Mm. So we were, I, um, 
parent-wise, they were fighting that battle because in South Texas at the time, we're talking 2004 to 2011. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of circus training. So the yeah. only acrobatic training I had access to was competing gymnastics. And mind you, I was quite good. I wasn't phenomenal for my age, but I was winning state, regional, and national competitions okay. um, competing gymnastics. So I was struggling. It's a really intense schedule. And like my love of circus was always this excuse of like, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to compete gymnastics anymore. Mom, I want to do circus. And they would just look at me and say, Kyle, you have to keep doing gymnastics. It's the way that you're going to be able to end up auditioning for circ or be able to end mm-hmm. up pushing yourself into that environment. I remember my dad always used to think that I would end up in like a power track act because I was, uh, mm-hmm. I switched from artistic gymnastics to power tumbling and trampoline. Oh, uh, okay. As I was learning contortion. <laughs> which is a really weird Best mix ever <laughs> yeah weirdest mix ever so um he always thought that i would be you know like a power tumbler or something and in the time that i was competing gymnastics i found out that i was really flexible um and around the same time my mom was like doing all of this research what can i do to get him this opportunity how can i get him this circus training like my mom was super proactive and also oh, they were very supportive of your dream and like being very proactive to find ways so yeah, you could achieve it very supportive. Uh, my dad was an athlete, used to sing musical theater in high school. My mom is an architect interior designer. So they understand the art draw and they love live entertainment. They also love Cirque. So mm-hmm. they just did anything that they could. And one year my mom found the National Circus School because Cirque gives a lot of money to the school every year. Mm-hmm. Found out that there were summer camps. So in 2008, I started going to do summer camp there. The year before, actually, we did, took a family vacation because my dad had a client in Montreal. Uh, my mm-hmm. dad's a, an attorney. And we took a family vacation there, and I ended up seeing Kusa. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was flexible, but when I saw that contortion number, I knew yeah. that I had <laughs> to do contortion. So that went, like, just like the Diablo number, like the Kusa contortion number sent me into a whole other spiral of wanting to learn another circus art. Mm-hmm. So eventually going to the summer camps, I ended up at a camp when I was 15, 2000, summer of 2011. It was my fourth year of camp and they were having auditions for the full-time program at the camp. Mm -hmm. And one of the coaches, Nicolas, he was, he looked around the group and said, Hey, this is the list of kids that we had that were supposed to audition because they were based off of like a Canadian pre-selection tour that the Mm -hmm. school was kind of testing out at the time. And I wasn't Canadian, so I wasn't on the list. And I raised my hand and asked, hey, can can I join the group and, and audition? Because I knew that I wanted to go to the school mm-hmm. at some point. Like once I walked in and did my first summer camp, it was kind of the same motif that I had with Cirque. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I have to be here. They have mm-hmm. a high school program. They have a college program. Like this is my key yeah. to get into Cirque. Yeah. And so I did the audition and they pulled my mom to the side at the end of the summer camp much like ha- what happened in gymnastics <laughs> and coach, said, hey, yeah. we think that your kid is super talented and we'd love to have him here to start the 10th grade, his 10th grade year in three weeks. Got a study permit, asked my dad if I could go. He looked at me and said, son, how many other kids got offered this opportunity? And I said, well, I'm the only American boy that they asked. Mm-hmm. He had a big sigh, sat back in his chair and said, okay, well, you're going. So then I moved to Montreal and started my real circus training. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I, I remember when you arrived at circus school because I was doing the, the college program 
when you yeah. first arrive. And I remember you walking in the studio with like your gymnastic unitard. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking like, okay, who is this, who is this guy? And I remember that some coaches were saying like, uh, he is very, very promising. He's a very, very, very good talent. Very, he's a very good acrobat. And I remember that they were pushing the um, trampoline on you a lot. Like I remember they were like making you do a lot of trampoline and like you were nailing all the tricks. But then in between all training, you would always go on like the silk and like the aerial hoop and you were so flexible. So that I remember thinking that also like seeing you from the side and being like, oh yeah, this, this kid is a very good acrobat and oh, he's so flexible. Like he can do literally anything. Uh, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, that's that's really amazing to hear because when I went, when I showed up at the school, mind you, my obsession and desire to work for Cirque and then going to the summer camp led me into studying like the graduates of the school and looking at, mm -hmm. you know, all of what it's about. And I discovered Cirque Elwaz and Seven Fingers and the other side of the contemporary circus world mm -hmm. that exists in Quebec through the school. And so when I walked in, I was totally blown away by all the talent. I mean, when I was in 10th grade, you were graduating school. So you were my yeah. first at Pro Synthes. Oh, and yeah. that year. Ex exiting year, yeah. Yeah, class of 2012. Probably one of the strongest years that's ever come out of the school that I've ever seen. Like that at Pro Synthes blew me away. It yeah. blew me away. So <laughs> That's nice to hear. It's crazy to hear. Yeah, that experience I remember coming into. So I have this iconic, we can touch on this really quickly. I have this yeah, for iconic sure. video <laughs> that I once recorded when I was very little in my living room, in my gymnastics leotard of me doing the Kuza contortion number because I was so in love with the it. The whole act? The whole act. Uh, with the music, everything. With the music and everything, I decided, you know, which girl I was and what moment. It was like a little <laughs> solo version of this act. And some, and it had been deleted off of YouTube. I, so I actually recorded it live, like with a webcam feature that YouTube had. And one year I tried to put it on private because I'd kind of grown out of it. I was like, Ooh, I should probably put this on private. It got like 30,000 <laughs> views or something before I put it on private. And uh, I accidentally deleted it. And so I don't have the original file because it was created oh, online on, no, YouTube. on YouTube. Yeah. So, um, but some of the kids in the college program were like, oh my God, it's that YouTube kid. He's the one that did. Oh, really? <laughs> that, that did that video. Like they knew it was like Kevin Beverly and like Ronaldo. They knew. Oh yeah, they knew. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and Natasha Patterson, who was in the original number, was already yes. in the high school program and we're the same yes. age. So we were in the same year. Uh, were you so stoked to be with her? That was my first touch. That was the first of many full circle moments that I've had with Cirque du Soleil. Hmm. Um, yeah, we became really good friends, um, got to discover who she is as a person and who she is as an artist. I mean, there's so much mm -hmm. more talent that, that came from that girl than just what she's yeah, done on Kuza. For sure. Yeah. And I think that kind of wraps together the beginning of my experience at the school, um, to kind of continue on the point that I started earlier. Mm -hmm. Like I walked in and was just like, wow, how am I going to do this? Like, this is real. This is becoming a thing. And like, how? what is my path going to be to bring me to this top level of talent that I mm -hmm. need to show to be able to move on to serve? How was it? Like, how did you find out that you wanted to do hand balancing? <sighs> so I went back and forth with some disciplines. Like you said, I actually started off with tissue as my specialty. I had recently discovered Ariel before I came in to the school. And um, 
you know, I was really flexible. So they put me in contortion classes instead of the regular flexibility classes. And that year, Amaluna um, had its premiere in the Old Port. Mm-hmm. And I actually, while I was watching Yulia Mihailova, who mm-hmm. is a hand balancer that was working on the show for a very long time, who actually works here in Las Vegas now. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was on Kusa too. She did the contortion act in Kusa too. Yes. Yep. She did a solo moment. She was on Ovo. Yeah. For a little bit also. <laughs> and she was on Verakai also for a little bit. So she yeah. did all of these iconic ro- female roles mm-hmm. that I always wanted to do, which is actually is another interesting thing to just mention is that all of my, uh, most of my inspirations were female. And it mm-hmm. didn't even stem from contortion because my original inspiration was the Kidam and Lanuba Diablo numbers. Yeah. So I ran and then, you know, Elena Lev, Allegria Hula Hoops, mm-hmm. the contortion. And then when I ran into Yulia and saw her act, it was at a time where I felt like I didn't want to do tissue. There's something about it that wasn't calling me. Mm-hmm. And people had, you know, mentioned, oh, hand balancing is kind of a possibility for you. Because I could already, you know, I could do like a croc push up and mm-hmm. I could kind of do a like a wobbly one arm because mm-hmm. you know just for fun yeah and watching her act i really realized wow what a phenomenal showcase of a body type that i have which is mm-hmm. contortion mm-hmm. um hand balancing can be and it doesn't all have to be flexibility based it can be strength based yeah, and exactly. movement based and all that sort of stuff so after that the next year i pushed for a transfer into hand balancing uh that was fall of 2012 I learned one arm like that fall basically and mm-hmm. had to prepare a number really quickly for the auditions for the yeah. college program. So then I ended up making it into the college program. They actually accepted me into the prep program called Mise en Niveau mm-hmm. because they wanted me to have more time hand balancing because it just takes so long to develop. They sat me down and said, Hey, we accepted you into Mise en Niveau. We think that you're really talented, but we want you to have four years hand balancing. And to be completely honest, that was something that pissed me off yeah. because I worked so <laughs> You're hard. like, I want to be in Segni today. I don't want to spend more time training. I just want to get there. Exactly. And I just felt like <laughs> that year. And mind you, I, I, so I ended up graduating in a year with three other hand balancers and they were trying to avoid having like discipline mm. saturation in mm-hmm. each year. And I really honestly felt, and this is no shade to them, but objectively, I really felt like I should have been one of the choices that got an offer to go into the first year of the program, mm-hmm. just objectively based off of that. So it was one of those situations, um, you know, in the entertainment industry where I learned that it's not all objective. It's about a package deal. It's about who's coaching. It's about who the head of studies is at that time, what mm-hmm. plan they have for you, where they see you going after the school. Um, and that lit a fire under me. And I was like, great, if I'm going to be in Ms. Niveau, then I am going to be, without a doubt, the hand balancer that will move from Mizaniveau into first year. Like, mm-hmm. if I have to work my butt off and get ready for these auditions, get ready, mama, because I'm <laughs> about to blow it out of the water. And so it was actually a, a really motivational time for me. It sounds like it. Yeah, I pushed my <laughs> skill level like really so, hard. So pissed, yeah. Well, because then also there's a hint of, wow, I thought that I did everything that I needed to do to get into this program. And all of a sudden I'm going to get put back up on the chopping block again. Like Uh, I'm going to have to re-audition for this school. And like, I am not going to be the one that moved 2000 miles away from home to fulfill my dreams of becoming a circus artist and working for Cirque du Soleil. And two years later, I have to move back and go to regular college. Yeah. So I trained like crazy. And the next year I ended up auditioning and I got bumped into second year. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I was like, okay. wow, that's crazy. That's amazing. So they saw yeah. you at the audition, you some second time, and they're like, yeah, yeah, he's he's strong, he's strong enough. He doesn't need to be in first year. We can move in right away to second year. It didn't quite happen like that. Actually, um, <clears throat> they offered me a, a contract to go into first year. So I signed all the, and finished all the paperwork to go into first year. And right before the end of the year, when we were doing the graduating shows, Daniela Arenda Sova, who was our head of studies at the time, walked up to me and said, oh my gosh, you guys have been at the Tohu performing and I've been looking for you all week. Um, I wanted to tell you, we're putting you in second year. What? Excuse me? <laughs> but I... But I'm supposed to go into first year. So then all of a sudden, my timeline that I envisioned to develop my final act just got cut off by a year. And I was like, oh my gosh, I kind of have to have something relatively presentable by the end of next year. So it went into, into another phase of like hyperspeed work. It seems like in your story, you had so many of these moments when you're like, okay, it's starting tomorrow, we're moving up into speed. Starting tomorrow is going to be much more intense. You're ready. And then years later okay starting in three weeks things are going to move much faster but you can take it and then another time like oh when you get put into mise niveau it was a bit similar but this time it was more you on yourself you're like okay if i'm gonna have to re-audition i'm gonna move up to speed another time and then the next <laughs> the year after again you're moving to second year you have to like push again it, it seems like life was constantly like pushing you further and further and further It, it, to be honest, it wasn't actually, it makes me a little bit emotional um, because my life has been filled with this motif of, I've been so lucky to be put in front of these amazing people that have been able to give me opportunities. And they kind of, they look at me with this, this, this look in their eye and they kind of turn their heads to the side and they go, you're not like the rest. So here you go. Here's an opportunity that's unlike the rest. And I get pushed. Like I've always been that kid that they were like, you're not like the other ones. You have this. Like we want, we see you on a, on a different level. We want to push you forward. And different level doesn't mean better necessarily. They're just like, we see something special in you. And so we're going to offer you something that's not run of the mill. That's not status quo. And so it is true. It has always kind of been like that for me. I don't know why. It just has been. And how do you feel about it? Are you satisfied with that? Not that status, but that these opportunities? Or it's something that scares you sometimes? Or like, do you wish you the more regular pass are you super happy about these opportunities of course i th i think it i think it just it develops a track that's just unique and kind of your own i can't mm -hmm. necessarily compare it to anybody else's track because this way of being this way of of developing my artistic career has been so um so unique to what i do and what i offer as a unique package as an artist. So mm -hmm. I've just been lucky enough to, to be around people who have appreciated my uniqueness and my talents and who have given mm -hmm. me opportunities to blossom. I, I am really happy with it, but it does come with, with moments of pressure. You know, when yeah, Daniela sure. looks at you and goes, oh, well, you're not like the rest of them. You can handle going from Mizanivo to second year. You'll exit with a great number and you'll end up working for amazing companies. We believe in you. You're like... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you kind of rest on that on someone else's confidence in you and then other times there are moments of of confidence where getting offered those opportunities makes you feel or makes you realize like wow i have something to really be proud of and that's what's going to push me forward so i think there's kind of a polarity that i experienced mm -hmm. in having that be the the flow okay and so move forward to till the end of school you're graduating with a stellar 
hand balancing act? Did you move right away onto OVO? Um, I basically did, but not actually. So before my approved synthesis, I ended up getting a call from Flip Fabricate. Mm-hmm. In this was in February. Yeah, it was in February. And Camille Tremblay, who actually graduated in your year, yes, reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm doing this duo hand balancing act. And my par- partner, Louis Marc, who was another graduate of the school, is unavailable. Mm-hmm. He's on Totem right now. Yeah. Yeah, sure. He was, in, he was in Japan with us. Yeah. Yes. And so she said, I'm looking for a partner. Are you interested in the summer contract? Hopped on a call with Bruno Gagnon. He offered me a summer contract that was going to start. I was going to miss a week of creation um, to be able to graduate the next day. So June 12th, I graduated. June 13th, I was on a bus to Quebec. June 14th, I started creation for this summer contract that was outside at the Agora de Quebec. Nice. Um, and we did like 40 shows there. So I kind of, I had signed that earlier in the year. At my Prof Synthes, the CERT scouts came to me and said, hey, Kyle, we really, really are looking for a place for you here at Cirque. We really love what you do. We just don't have any opportunity yet. Okay. Like, okay, great. And actually the summer before was the first time that I ever did my act for Cirque. So I was part of a, a group of 10 to 12 ENC students, the National Circus School students that got picked for a special event over the summer, which was the opening of the Pan American Games that mm, Cirque du Soleil yeah. created. And I ended up having an opportunity to do my solo hand balancing act at the front of the stage um, while completely in the upstage because this was like a 30 meter by 30 meter stage Mm -hmm. it was massive so upstage wellington lima um who also has had a very illustrious cert career was doing a character moment up there and there were other things going on on stage also so i was a part of this kind of big group act so you know they had seen that they'd seen my presentes they let me know that they were interested and right before i ended up leaving for the flip fabric contract i got a call from bridget Mm-hmm. Casting scout for Cirque. Casting scout for Cirque. She has news for me. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, hop on the call. Hey, Bridget. What's going on? I'll never forget. I was in. I was in like rehearsal <laughs> right before one of our dress rehearsal runs for the final end of year show at the Tone. Uh-huh. And she goes, "Hey, Kyle. Um, so we're considering you for this touring show right now. We can't tell you what it is yet. There's some things that are going on that are in the works. But I just wanted to let you know that." we would really like for you to end up being on tour. It's a solo act. And the senior artistic director is actually going to buy a ticket to come see the show that you're performing right now at the Tohu at some point during the two weeks. We'll let you know more information when we have it. During warm-up, I was like, maybe the, the Cirque senior directors here maybe i need to be a little bit more flexible maybe i need to do my trick with oh my gosh, what's gonna happen <laughs> so then i ended up moving to quebec city for the summer doing that contract and in the middle of the contract uh, about five or six weeks after they originally contacted me and said hey uh this is for a, a a spot that we have on ovo doing a solo hand balancing act you know gave me the information mm-hmm. for the character ended up doing the contract negotiations and they're like so when are you done with your contract i was like oh well we have an option uh, we have an option show on September 3rd and we may or may not do it. And they're like, okay, great. Um, September 4th, we're going to cover your travel back to Montreal. And uh, September 5th, you'll start wow. getting ready for OVO. And I hadn't had a week off since February. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've done my show. Boom. Boom. It's like the Lady Gaga meet, like another club. No city. Yeah. Next show. So yeah. that's what I was doing. 
Um, and then I had a six week integration at IHQ. I had a two week integration on tour and October 26th, 2016, I premiered my act in the Dominican Republic on OVO. Wow. And the too bad first CD to start. Yeah, absolutely insane. Um, my parents and their respective partners came to see the show. It was hot as hell. That arena like, did not have AC. <laughs> it was crazy. And it still is a dream that I'm kind of pinching myself about. I'm like, God, I don't know how I had my head screwed on straight. Yeah. How do you feel during your first show? Like you're the first time you're, you're backstage, you're full costume, you've done your, your show condition, everything. You're about to step on stage. How did you feel when you like actually step on stage and perform your first act? I blacked out. I don't remember. I, I really don't remember. I remember my show conditions really clearly. Mm -hmm. It went really well. Um, the artistic director was super happy. And my show condition was the same day as the first day that I did the show. So I did my yeah. act twice in the same day. And I just remember like my mom and her partner were watching the show condition. And I gave my mom a big hug and she said, we're so proud of you. And my mom's partner looked me in the eye and said, you were absolutely perfect. That was amazing. We can't wait to see you in the show later today. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I remember about the experience. Um, it was so surreal. It was just all of my dreams had come true. Everything that I had worked for, you know, 10 years later was 100% coming to fruition in the most fabulous way, um, in a way that I would have never expected. Like I had a full solo, you know, back, go, hopping back to the little kid who wishes that he was a girl so that he could do the, the Lanuba Diablo number. Yeah. <laughs> right, a little group act. Yeah. Like I'm a soloist doing contortion in a Cirque du Soleil show. Mind, mind blowing. I don't even, I still don't even have the words for it now. Just like, and I was in the, in the place where, and I tell people this a lot in regards to my experience with Cirque. I wanted to work for Cirque for so long. You have this impression of what it's going to feel like and what this dream mm, is going to yeah. feel like to come true. And then as you develop your training to attain the level that will allow you to even be considered for that kind of opportunity, mm -hmm. you develop this professional attitude and this professional dynamic and awareness of where you stand in the circus community and what your training needs to do and how you need to prepare yourself to, to be able to do the job that's being asked of you. Mm -hmm. And so I was backstage those first couple of weeks and, you know, the pre-show announcement is, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cirque du Soleil. And I'm still pinching myself because I'm like, oh my yeah. God, I'm really here. <laughs> But if I don't focus as Kyle the professional, I'm not going to be able to, to do my act the way that I need to, even though Kyle, the, the nine-year-old, is like, shh. Yeah. <laughs> like, completely mind-boggled still. Um, and I still kind of experience that today, actually. And my five-year with Circus coming up soon, so. Nice. Yeah. It's through the pre-show announcement and the, when the music starts and you hear from back, you hear they're like, Rah! the clap of the people. You're like, oh, my God, it's happening. That's it. That's it. This is real. I have an adrenaline rush right now thinking about it, actually. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> With a little extra, if it's like a if it's a premiere night, all the medias are here, you're like, okay, tonight I can't, I can't fuck up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pressure. So, anyways, that's the really long story of how I went from little boy in Texas to working for Cirque du Soleil. Nice, but man, it's a beautiful story. And I, I really love that aspect that you you get so much expectations put upon you so many times from a very young age and you always took that as a motivation. It looks like you transcended yourself so many times since a young age and that led you to achieve your dream. And I think there is, I think it's perfect. It's a perfect story. It's amazing. Those are beautiful words to say about it. Um, it, it yeah, 
It's true. There, there have been moments of weakness in that. And I actually just experienced that um, recently, a few weeks ago, just with like some things that are going on in, in my career and, and in my life, just having that moment of like, wow, I, I feel like sometimes I always have this expectation, expectation, pardon, to do like to do the absolute most, like go above and beyond. And that's, that's internalized too, right? Like that's mm-hmm. something that comes from me, but um, there have been some external factors that have led me to that. And it has really been a catalyst for some incredible, incredible growth. And like I said, I'm still pinching myself. Like I can't believe that that dream that I had as a little boy has really become my reality. And I really feel like with some of the subjects that are coming up that we'll speak on in a, in a bit, um, I feel like I've really left quite a mark in my career at the National Circus School, my career yeah, in Cirque du Soleil, and my career as a contemporary artist, a contemporary circus artist as a whole, which is always really, that's all that you want to do, right? Like that yeah. one moment when you walk into that, into school and you look at all of these people who have found their color and who are doing these amazing things with their careers, you just kind of sit back and go, wow, I can't wait to see like, how am I going to leave a mark on this industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true. And the retrospection of that is really incredible. So. Yeah, for sure. Just what you say reminds me that one, that one moment, uh, Sarah and I, my, Sarah, my trapeze partner, we were in, in a break between cities. We were in Montreal and we were training at circus school. And I remember that we were on the trapeze and you had installed your platforms with all your different level canes and your Julie Lachance, your artistic counselor, who was also our artistic counselor at school, yes. walked yes. in the studio. So when she walked in, she was like, oh, starting DM, how, how are you doing? And so we start talking with her and she said, oh, yeah, I'm here to watch Kyle's act and give him some, some feedbacks. You should watch it with me. And we were like, yeah. And she looked at us. She was like, yeah, you should watch it with me. So I remember we sat down with her and we, and you did your act. And I remember we were looking at each other side and we were like, this guy is incredible. And like, I, I remember at that moment, we also said like, oh, you remember? Like he's the kid with the gymnastic unitard, like who was like so flexible and like, and because we, we haven't seen you since we left school. So we, we left it off as the kid with the gymnastic unitard and like fast forward three, four years later, we come back and like, we see you doing your act and it's like, dynamite and i remember like that like that shock of like oh my god this guy is so good like so so good and i remember the act finished and like julie lachance turned to us and she had that smile on her face like he's good huh (laughs) (laughs) and we were like yeah yeah pretty good (laughs) yeah we developed something really amazing my experience at school with her was absolutely phenomenal as an artistic counselor she gave me everything that i could have ever asked for and more I'm sure that you had a similar experience with her. It's yeah, absolutely yeah, fabulous working with her. And she helped me create that act that ended up getting me a job at Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, That's sure. wild, yeah. wild. <laughs> Our partner in this episode is Circus Talk, the online carrier marketplace for circus and the performing arts. Circus Talk is the new thing that is great for our international circus community. It is an amazing information resource, bringing news, events, and industry trends to us, professionals working in the field. What also makes Circus Talks amazing is their first online casting platform that connects talents and talent seekers in circus and performing arts. If you're a talent seeker, 
you can finally post jobs and auditions in a professional and transparent way, instead of using social media accounts. There are already over 28,000 artist profiles on Circus Talk that talent seekers can search while talents can find jobs and apply to them via the Circus Talk platform. You can get your first month free on both Circus Talk Talent and Talent Seeker Pro membership by using the promo code TAPIROUGE in one word. So go to circustalk.com, sign up to Pro and use the code TAPIROUGE to find your spotlight with our partner, Circus Talk. All right, guys, a little side story now. Back in 2014, I hurt my back training backstage before a show. The pain was so intense, I couldn't put my socks on, sit for more than two minutes, and obviously, it took me out of the show for quite some time. I followed a strict core rehabilitation program, and after six weeks, I got back on stage. But I kept having recurring pain. So I started to educate myself about core anatomy, rehab training, and pain science. I wanted to understand why am I doing all these exercises if the pain keeps coming back. The more I was learning, the more I understood I had to change. I started switching exercises, tweak some techniques and executions, and also completely changed my perception of pain. After a couple of weeks, on top of reducing considerably my pain level, I was feeling so much stronger, which increased my confidence to move and better perform on stage. My life overall was so much better. Finally, I was pain-free and not scared to hurt my back again. I had a lot of artists and athlete friends who saw that happening and asked me, hey, what did you do for your back? And I thought, I could put it all out in a clear and clean way, instead of always pulling random videos on YouTube and giving quick guidance. So I reached out to all the best doctors, physiotherapists, and performance medicine specialists whom I met touring, and asked them to help me develop Protocol Cut to the Core. Protocol Cut to the Core is the first rehab and strengthening protocol for back or hip pain that also includes a comprehensive course in core anatomy, biomechanics, and pain science. It is approved by doctors, physios, and performance medicine specialists from five different countries. If you are suffering from acute or persistent back or hip pain, you can find protocol Cut to the Core on our website at cuttothecorefitness.com. When movement is an issue, movement is the solution. And now, let's get back to the show. Uh, and now I want to ask you a little bit about makeup, because I feel like makeup is such a huge part of your, your career and your past as well. Yeah, it is. Um, so I started to fall in love with the art of makeup as I started to discover Cirque du Soleil when I was mm -hmm. younger um, in the YouTube days. And, you know, put it like, took interest in it and put it down a couple of times. And then when I was at school, I needed to start working. I was doing corpos after school at El Waz and getting offered mm -hmm. jobs. And so we started having makeup classes at, at school. So I needed to build my own kit. And I just started falling in love with it. I've always loved makeup. I've always loved the art of, of transformation. Um, I mm -hmm. discovered drag for the first time, actually, um, when I was... 12 or 13 and on youtube you know drag queens are notorious for being the ones that like 
have this incredible facade for like the least amount of money possible. So they were always mm-hmm. the ones that were like, oh, mm-hmm. go to this dollar store and pick up this eyeshadow. It's bomb. Um, pick up these brushes. They're really cheap and fabulous. Mm-hmm. So then once I started developing my own kit at circus school, I had a, a roommate actually that loved RuPaul's Drag Race. And like I said, I had kind of like, like discovered drag and, and I love the transformative aspect of it. I mean, it's literally you're a walking piece of art in drag, yeah. right? And uh, so, and it's the transformation is really similar to like, for example, the character that I play in sort of like, I am covered mm-hmm. from head to toe, not recognizable. Like I am, that yeah, is for sure. drag. And in the friend, in the, the <laughs> word of my, the words of my friend, Mindy Lamore and another drag queen that, uh, that she works with, this is dragoons, like <laughs> full dragoons. Um, Domino Couture is the one that that came from, for those of you who know the drag world. But yeah, so um, he fell in love with RuPaul's Drag Race and introduced me to it. I immediately, he was like, you are going to love it. Like, I can't believe you haven't watched it. Totally fell in love with it. And shortly after he was like, well, you're good at makeup. Will you put me in drag? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and started putting him in drag. We had some assignments at school um, where we needed to like replicate makeups. And one of my favorite characters mm-hmm. in makeups from Cirque is the trickster. Yeah. Who hopping backwards a little bit too, was uh, one of my original inspirations as a male contortionist like working in a female dominated discipline and now i feel like there's a lot of male contortionists out there working shout out to all of you (laughs) um but all of my inspirations were female and i remember in school being like how am i going to embody this masculine character this masculine presence while still you know being queer and effeminate and being Mm -hmm. myself but not having my effeminate qualities be distracting because it was always Mm -hmm. an insult when I was growing up, I was always getting made fun of for being the feminine one, that my favorite color was pink, that I wanted to wear makeup, that I wanted to do the girl's act, that I wanted to wear girl's clothes or whatever, because it was just, it's what felt right to me. You know, it's like, played with mm-hmm. Barbies, favorite color is pink, like all the quintessential gay things. Yeah. Like, you name it, that was me. So I didn't want that to be distracting. But distra- distracting in which way you mean? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I follow what you're, you're so meaning. This, so in, in this, I think the other point that I, that I, that I have to discuss like as a queer circus artist was mm-hmm. becoming comfortable in your sexuality. Because for me, when I was growing up, being the gay one was always a negative thing. It was always the, oh, it's distracting. Oh, he's girly. Oh, he's this, that's something to make fun of. So when in I your circus to- training too, like when you were creating acts and stuff like that, did you, you have people giving you the notes of like your, or you, what you do is too feminine looking or stuff like that? Or not necessarily, no, not necessarily. Um, there was just some, some of the internalized, you know, actually really internalized homophobia in a way from that scarred me from getting made fun of. And then of course, you know, you're in high school, kids are assholes, like kids suck. So they're going to make fun of me for it or whatever. I wasn't necessarily getting that feedback, but I didn't ever want to receive that feedback because I felt Mm. like my percep, the perception of my sexuality was always something that got in the way of people seeing me for me. Mm. Yeah. sometimes except for the ones who obviously were able to see me for me mm-hmm. so i didn't want that to be distracting and the trickster is a great masculine example of this amazing stage presence that is yeah. flamboyant and extra but very powerful yeah it's and true. masculine and so yeah. I jason barrett did an amazing job creating that oh that my god and was definitely a pioneer in the industry for creating such a character in such a, a media, you know, in a Cirque du Soleil show, in a big top show. I think he was very like, he, he traced the past for a lot of other artists for sure. Absolutely. He, he and the character that he's created has been a stable source of inspiration for me across the board 
for years and years. So as I became, as I loved that character, I started to love the makeup. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, asking the, the makeup artists from Cirque who were teaching us makeup at ENC during the classes, mm-hmm. like, oh, can you give me tips on this and that? And I became friends with Veronique um, Saint-Germain, who's one, of the, who's one of the makeup artists who's working there at the time. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting integrated on OVO. Now I'm in a, con- a context where I have to do a high-level Cirque makeup every day, just learning, falling in love, learning, falling in love. Um, and eventually I was on a tour break. and. I was doing a makeup project. So while I was on tour, I started to fall in love with makeup and male glam was becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. Guys wearing eyeshadow, all that kind of stuff. Oh my God, it's becoming normal. I can, I, can, <laughs> I can do a smoky eye and go out. And so I bought my first little personal kit that wasn't intended for mm-hmm. stage, but only intended for me to do glam. Started going out to clubs after the shows with friends and makeup and just like the things started to layer on top mm. of one another. And it just became this hobby that I was doing on the side that I fell in love with. So I reached out to the makeup department while I was on tour. I said, hey, I have this amazing idea. I want to do every makeup in Ovo, male and female, on my personal Instagram. All of this stuff is still there, by the way. If you go to Kyle Kirkle Circus mm-hmm. and you scroll down to 2017, you'll see all of it. I did a time lapse and a picture mm-hmm. of every makeup on Ovo. And the makeup team approved for me to be able to release it on my private social media. Nice. So one of the tour breaks, I reached out to Vero. And I said, mm-hmm. hey, can we do like a little Cirque makeup? Like, can we have a little jam for just my project? Like now I'm posting makeup weekly, so let's do it. And she goes, yeah, sure. So I go and we have fun and, and whatever. I was like, oh, I'm going to be back in, in this tour break. I'll see you in a couple of, of weeks. We should do another one. I end up getting injured on OVO. And I get sent back to Montreal. And my timeline ends up being, I spent nine months in Montreal rehabbing from an injury. Yeah. And the first week that I was there, Actually, the day that I got injured, so I tore cartilage in my wrist. Mm-hmm. I walk off stage. I'm in tears. I'm shattered. I'm totally devastated. I'm like, I can't believe that. Like, I'm injured. Like, I know my body. I know this pain. I've never felt this pain before. I'm going to be out for a while. She mm-hmm. gives me a call. I was supposed to be back in Montreal like three or four days later by pure happenstance for my tour break. And she goes, hey, um, we're looking for a man to self-apply the trickster makeup and film a tutorial for internal use because there's a lot of, um, of rotation and turnover with that character and we always have backups. It's a very complicated makeup and we need some additional resources to be able to teach people on tour to do it. Are you interested in that? Mm-hmm. Uh, duh. <laughs> she was like, I thought of you because you love that makeup. I was like, okay, work. Let's do it. I end up injured and right before, so we set up a time and I walked into the studio and she goes, hey, before you start on this makeup, and mind you, she was going to be on the side supervising me every step, mm-hmm. kind of approving things as I went, as I was filming, so that they could edit a little backstage montage of mm-hmm. how to do the makeup for the artists on the show. And she goes, hey, my, the head of makeup, Isabel, thinks she'd love to speak to you really quickly. Great. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. I'd love to, love to meet her and speak to her. She takes me to the offices. She goes, hi, I'm Isabel Fink. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, just by the way, we heard that your timeline was like maybe a little extended due to your injury. And um, we have eight or nine other makeups from other shows that we would love for you to film tutorials for, for internal use, the same way that you're doing this for Kuza right now, if you have the time and you're, and you're permitted to do so by OVO. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn. I mean, I would work for this department, like taking out the trash. Yes. And I'm being offered <laughs> like this phenomenal opportunity. Yeah, for sure. It's so amazing. It gets cleared by Physio and I film the nine tutorials, which ends up later in a different, 
mix of circumstances becoming the YouTube series Color Me Cirque. Exactly. Where I yeah. took the audience through nine different makeups from three of our different shows um, that was supposed to be intended for internal use and ended up being broadcast to the world on YouTube. Yeah, I remember the, um, the producer from that web series is the same producer than the one we worked with with my wife, Elizabeth, on the Circuit Out yes. series. And I remember like we were chatting or like texting each other and he told me about, about you. I remember also he's thinking, like, oh, we're going to work on this makeup series with these guys, the Cirque artists, but he also does makeup. And I was like, oh, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yep. yep. I mean, I was the one. I was the one that was always messing around with makeup. So people knew. And um, this, so this was all filmed when I didn't have, I was on insurance pay. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't pay me um, to do this thing. So I was doing this pro bono as an artist because it was something that I loved. Mm-hmm. And in the end, um, while I was recovering from my injury, I kind of decided that my time on OVO was done and I was being told to go kind of go back to freelance work and, mm-hmm. and discover myself. And at this point, I had also kind of already started um, dabbling in drag and discovering who I was in drag, like on tour. Okay. I'd already done a couple of performances and stuff. And so I was like, okay, I think it's time for me to be done with Ova. I think I've learned like the cap of, of what I could learn on that show was mm-hmm. learned. I was kind of having some struggles with the apparatus. The apparatus is really not the easiest thing to hand balance on. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had kind of conquered the challenge of developing a number that was great on it. But I was like, you know, I want to go back to Canes. I want to go back to my roots and I want to redevelop something different. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget. I resign. A week later. I'm walking around Montreal, like I have like two weeks left of, of rehab. And Isabel Fink walks up to me and goes, hey, Kyle, um, I have an opportunity. I, I know that you're really interested in going back to freelance work and doing drag and doing circus, but I have the opportunity to hire two new people for nine months over the summer to help um, hold down the fort here at headquarters while our main make- makeup artists are out working on the various productions that we have going on. It's a nine month contract. Um, I know it's not necessarily exactly what you wanted, but I thought of you and it's yours if you want it. What? It's happening again. The, the, the opportunity is happening again. <laughs> Shit. I think I have to take this. I'll never forget. I'm texting all my friends. I think I have to take this. I think I have to take this. I sign the paperwork. I get fully cleared by physio. Take a day off. HR switches me from artists on a touring show onto payroll. Mm-hmm on, you know, at IHQ and I go straight into my training and I worked a nine month full-time contract. I was the only man working in the department at the time. I was like one of three that had ever worked mm-hmm. in it. I'm the first artist that ever went from artist to makeup artist. Yeah, and I'm sure. the youngest person that's ever worked in that department. So once again, like day one of the contract <laughs> comes up and I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm like pitching myself. Like, am I good enough for this? And, <laughs> and may I shout out because she's probably going to end up uh, listening to this actually so shout out um isabel fink is probably one of the most um supportive managers and people that i've ever i've ever had the pleasure of having contact with and working with mm. ever in my life she saw this potential in me to to be a makeup artist and to grow in this direction and was mm. never hesitant to offer what she thought i would be able to do and because of that you know i've really I've been able to develop this whole other side of my artistry within the exact same company that I'd always dreamed of, of working for. You know, once again, I'm just like, who would yeah. have ever thought that I would become a <laughs> fucking makeup artist for a Cirque? Like what? 
Uh, and obviously you had to do so many Cirque makeups. So if you would be to describe Cirque du Soleil makeup, like what's the signature of Cirque du Soleil makeup? How are they built? How are they constructed? What is the, what's the Cirque du Soleil makeup signature? Um, meticulous construction. Usually um, the way that a Cirque makeup is built is intended for it to be able to stay on your face from 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night when you take mm -hmm. it off, when you have to do a three show day. Mm -hmm. um, so like technically I would say that like it's re it's built for stage, big shapes, big transformation. A lot of the times, like the classic signature Cirque is big transformation and, um, and longevity. It needs to stay on all day and it needs to take you from being Kyle Craigle, the human to Kyle Craigle, the dragonfly or, you know, Kyle mm -hmm. Craigle, the spider. Mm -hmm. So I would say big transformation um, meticulous construction and, and fantasy also yeah. a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you went to do checkups on tours as well. I did. As a makeup okay. artist. Yes. So all of a sudden I end up getting offered to go do a makeup checkup as the head makeup artist on that, um, on that annual checkup because the makeup artist who usually did it was working on a different special event. Mm -hmm. And here I am receiving a picture of Guillaume Cauchois, the, <laughs> the, the iconic duo trapeze porter, you know, who I first saw in 2011 was like, who I knew was signed for Cirque du Soleil. Like, wow, I'd love to have an opportunity to go work at Cirque like he does. And then, yeah, I was like, wow, I'm going to go on tour. And, and <laughs> instead of relating to you as an artist, I'm going to, you know, come in and help you fix whatever eyeliner or blending issue you had at that moment, yeah. at that point in the tour. So that was so yeah. fun. Yeah, I remember it was so fun to have you on tour with us. And like, I remember also that some, because I feel sometimes when makeup people from IHQ come on tour, a lot of artists can be kind of like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it, whatever. But the mm -hmm. fact that you, I feel, I don't know if it's because you were an artist as well, because you were more assertive. I felt like you, would, you, you wouldn't take shit from nobody, like all the big Russian porters and everything. You are like, no, put your mascara. Your mascara is part of the makeup. You're putting it and that's it. Like I, I remember very enjoying seeing you working like that. <laughs> I, try, I try to be nice too, you know, but then there comes that point where I understand I know what it's like to be running late for a show and have to do your makeup in 15 minutes. I know the mundane realities of doing the same show every day, being on tour, being away from your family. Um, and for a lot of people, a lot of people don't like necessarily makeup. It's just like a part of the job for them. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. I totally understand. But also when my boss paid for me to fly here and make sure that your makeup looks as good as possible, Sorry, honey. Do a job. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, honey. I have a job to do, and the quality is going to be on my name. So you're going to put your mascara on, Mama. <laughs> Love you, but actually, okay. So little secret tidbit that I never thought that I would say on a, on a publicly diffused um, podcast, but the show is closed now. So on the topic of of um, like the the big Russian porters or the yeah. Russian speaking guys that have a little bit more of a hard edged personality that presumably probably don't like putting on makeup. I watched the show when I first arrived. Um, I had some step-by-steps to do. I did the makeup on some of the unicycle artists, and then I got the opportunity mm -hmm. to watch the show, which was also the first time where I felt like my mark as a makeup artist made a difference on a Cirque du Soleil stage in front of a live mm -hmm. audience. Being able to see that was so surreal. I was like, I did that artist's makeup, and now she's blowing 
every single one of these 2000 people's minds with the amazing yeah. things that she yeah. can do on stage. Like that is such a privilege. It's true. It's amazing. Absolute, absolute privilege. So anyways, so I watched the show and the next day or two days later, I have a makeup session with the Russian crate, uh, the Russian bar, excuse me, flyers. Mm-hmm. There's three of those boys. And so the other two boys are on, there's two of the boys that are on time and they've started their makeup. And those two boys, I had quite a, a few notes on shapes and, and mm-hmm. technique to give them. The one that happened to have the best makeup was running a little bit late. He had something else to do, to do on site. So he comes in and uh, he was like, Hey, Hey, we introduce ourselves. Hey, yeah, just go ahead and get started on your makeup. I'm just going to give you a few notes. Um, you know, I received this picture of you. This, I think we could work on this and this. So once we get to those steps, let's, let's cover those things. Yeah, sure. Starts throwing on the the yellow cream which is supposed to come after his skin tone foundation and his brown contour color yes immediately starts going on the yellow i go hey um i think his name was eddie is yeah that possible <laughs> yeah <laughs> so hey eddie um where's your where's your beige tone foundation that's the first step in your makeup he goes oh i don't wear foundation <laughs> you don't you don't wear you're skipping the whole foundation yeah the whole skin tone foundation that covers his entire face. I was like, wait, you don't, you don't wear it at all. And he's like, nope, never have. I had no idea. <laughs> I saw up close pictures of him that I graded his makeup off of. And I just watched the show from the audience the night before. He has this beautiful glowing skin. And I would have never known that he'd never oh. wore his foundation. And so that was a point where as an artist, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick my battles. This boy has the highest quality makeup out of the three. He has a great attitude and his makeup looks phenomenal on stage. And I looked at him and I said, don't tell anybody that I told you this, but you don't need to put on your, I'll, I'll let you skip that step because honestly, from the stage, you look fantastic. Wow. And then let him continue on. That was one one of them that I I gave a little bit of leeway because he just looked so good. And I couldn't tell that he didn't have uh, foundation on. That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... So anyways, yeah, I, I worked, my makeup contract switched from full-time back to temporary um, the following month after that. So right after that, okay. I went into doing temporary hours with them. And then I was back freelancing drag and circus um, kind of at the same time. So you, you were working drag already at that time? Yep. So I was working 32-hour weeks at Cirque. And then on the weekends, I would go to Quebec City or perform here and there, I performed in drag at IHQ a couple of times, like a couple mm-hmm. of, of numbers. Um, and then I also had the amazing opportunity to play a character in a pilot run of a show called Until We Die. Yes. That's currently running now. And that was also while I was working as a makeup artist at Cirque. So I was doing my full days and then like catching a taxi down to Place des Arts where we were rehearsing. And I got to play a character that was in drag and I was doing a little contortion hand balancing number. So I'd kind of hit the drag from the makeup perspective. And I took drag up as a hobby while I was injured because I was like well I don't Mm -hmm. need to have a healthy wrist to look beautiful and drag and go out to the bars and have fun Mm -hmm. and discover who my character is so I was kind of doing that hit it from the makeup side then from the classic drag performance side had met and networked with with enough of the queens in Quebec to be offered regular drag gigs and then also was offered a gig where I was doing full high-level circus in drag so those things had already kind of started to come together. So once my full-time contract was up, I was like, hey, so I, I'm still here. I still want to work on call, but I want to go and kind of explore this. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this a little bit, about your hand balancing drag act. 
because I, re I remember hearing that you did um, a show at La Tue, at the big theater in Montreal. I and I remember that was a, like that performance made a lot of noise. Like I remember hearing a lot of people saying like, wow, like Kyle presented his handstand drag act. He was so strong and so like emotional. And I remember people saying like, it's, it's really like a, like a ground breaking presentation. Like people were saying like, it's not something that conceptually you, you, I think you can think, people can think of it. It's like, oh yeah, it's drag and handstand. But for some reason, people were also like, but it's, it, it has never been done to that level. Like no one has ever been presenting that in, in this specific way. Like I remember people saying that, yeah, the act was very emotionally, very strong because knowing you as an artist, you kind of know that acrobatically is going to be strong and you, you know like you are very capable of emoting, but I feel to bring the drag elements in the picture was something that was not very, that most of the people didn't expect it so much, I think. Yeah, so a couple of things about that act. The offer came up from me doing Until We Die. So mm -hmm. during the pilot process of that, there were some um, promoters who run the circus festival in Montreal and who work at Tohu came to see a preview of Until We Die because the following year, which it, the, the pandemic ended up happening shortly mm -hmm. after. So the following year, that show was supposed to be presented during the summer, during the circus festival. So they were coming in to kind of see what it was all about. And a few weeks later, or a few weeks later, what I'm saying, a few months later, I got contacted by Tohu and they said, hey, Kyle, um, we'd really love to have you on the show called Le Coup de Car, And we were really interested in having your act in drag. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, I don't really have an act that I present. Like I do some bar drag and like I did a version of a drag act for that show, but it was kind of, the concept was in the specificities mm -hmm. of that show. So, and they were like, that's fine. Carte blanche, do whatever you want. As long as you're in drag, here's your show fee. We're going to be doing 10 shows. It's going to happen here. And I go, Oh my God, this is like a prep synthesis round two. I get to make, <laughs> I have carte blanche to yeah. perform a drag act in any capacity that I see fit in a cabaret style show in one of the biggest circus theaters really in the world, but especially like in Montreal in front of this audience that I developed my circus career mm -hmm. um, in and around. So again, a huge opportunity is being offered to you. Big one, had a couple of months to prepare for it. And I was like, okay, great, let's do it. I start thinking, what am I doing? Start looking for music. How am I going to integrate this drag concept? In the Until We Die show, I took inspiration from the queer experience of questioning your gender. Okay. Like I said, I always wanted to do the girl stuff. I grew up playing with the Barbies. My favorite color was pink. I always wanted to wear my mom's cheerleading outfits. Like I, I loved wearing girls clothes from like a, a very early age and discovered drag at a very early age. Mm -hmm. And I took inspiration from all of the questions. Like you're like, I'd like to dress up as a girl. Does that mean that I am a girl? Does that mean that I want to be a girl? I've been asked that question a million times. Like, oh, you're so, you know, you like all the girl things. Don't you just want to be a girl? And yeah. in some situations, I'm like, yeah, it would be a lot easier if I were a girl because I just happen to <laughs> like a bunch of things that are classically quote unquote feminine, whatever yeah. the hell that means, right? Um, and in this show, I had the opportunity, there was a really tender scene where I grabbed an audience member from the crowd and we went up on a platform with a couch that was kind of supposed to be like my 
my home. Mm-hmm. And I stripped all the way down, wig off and everything, down to a dance mm-hmm. belt with this audience member sitting next to me. And I don't remember exactly how the moment it was Brigitte Poupal, who's the mm-hmm. director of the show. It was her idea. I don't remember in what context it was given to me, but I was then inspired by who is this person and where in this track are they discovering their their gender expression? And I took okay. I took inspiration from all the questions that I asked myself in drag, like, do I want to be a girl? Am I a girl? Why does this feel good? Am I gender fluid? Am am I non-binary? Like all of those questions are like, where do I sit? And at the end of it, I really sit as a, a cisgendered man who mm-hmm. likes to dress up in drag. I'm very feminine and it's like my feminine channel to express everything. And somewhere in between, mm-hmm. somewhere in my experience with that, I also have a little bit of gender fluidity where I feel really comfortable presenting as either gender. Mm-hmm. So I took inspiration off of that, of like, you take a guy home in drag, <clears throat> personal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you take everything off and you're like, what about this? What about me? Did they like, did they like the facade? Did they like the pure version of my energy that came through that was able to be unlocked by the facade? Do they assume that I'm an attractive man under the facade? What, what do they want out of who I am as per, out of my, out of my personality when they decide to come home with me? So how, how much, how much of yourself do you put in your drag character? A lot and not a lot. Sometimes she's my alter ego and sometimes she is myself, which actually your question really lines up with what I, where I ended up in the Kutcher. So in this, in this whole thing, I found this amazing scene in Until We Die of like really expressing a, a really vulnerable, genuine feeling that I felt when I was discovering who I was as mm-hmm. a man and as a character through drag. And I was like, that, that is what we need to see. That is the story that hasn't been told in a contemporary way with drag. I'm doing that. I'm in front of a contemporary um, public in Montreal. They'll mm-hmm. understand they won't be off put by the intensity of the style. And I'll be able to storytell in a, it, about my drag experience, who I have become through my drag on a contemporary stage. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do it. Sorry, can you repeat your question one more time? <laughs> what you just asked me? <laughs> like right now? Yes. Like how much of yourself is in your drag character it's in drag so i decided that this act was going to be based off of the sober side and the vulnerable side of how i inject myself into my drag and how i've discovered myself into my drag as opposed to only showing the fully vamped cinched mm-hmm. padded sexy beautiful woman that i also love to interpret and become mm-hmm. i've always been inspired by victoria's secret i've always been inspired by strong beautiful women and mm-hmm. i want to exemplify that in mm-hmm. my drag in my bar drag at least you know yeah so yeah i decided to actually this mannequin that you your viewers won't be able to see but this mannequin that's sitting behind me mm-hmm. i had this image of having a bust a male bust on stage during the number who would play as my counterpart. And the act is actually divided into three different sections. And in each section, that male bust represents a different form of masculine energy that I had to come into contact with and respond to as I was discovering who I was myself. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the bust represented questions that my dad asked me. Sometimes it represented kids that were making fun of me. Sometimes it represented um, 
some of the self-loathing things or questions that I was asking myself as I didn't quite know exactly who I was in terms of my sexuality and Mm -hmm. in terms of who I was just period as a human in or out of drag. Mm -hmm. And I was also really inspired by the Tarantino film Memento, which is kind of filmed backwards. So Mm -hmm. it's like filmed in chunks. Like you see the end of a chunk and then you skip to the beginning of that chunk all the way up to the ending. And then you see the ending of the next chunk and then you see the beginning. So actually um, that was a construction inspiration behind Mm -hmm. that, that I don't think was very apparent. Like I had a goal to make an act that was actually constructed conceptually backwards, but also Mm -hmm. if you only viewed it as an act that has um, a one way running through line from like Mm -hmm. present to future, um, that would also make sense. Okay. So that's what I did. And I ended up sharing some really, really vulnerable imagery. A lot of the imagery came from really, really vulnerable experiences that I had in my life of people, you know, catching me. There's a, there's one part in the middle of the act where, so at the top of the act, you kind of see, I walk out and you see me, you see the full blown up, huge lash wig, big jacket, whatever. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror. And the concept of that moment is after I come back at night, I play this amazing character. I brought joy to all of these people. They see this incredible creature. And then who, who is that creature when you see it through your own eyes, through the, the creator's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the night, right before you're about to take all the drag off. That was kind of the first inspiration. And in the next chunk, you get to see an in-between where the mannequin, I'm, I'm kind of chilling and I, I, I notice the mannequin. and I realized that I'm in, I'm in full drag. Like I have my shoes on and it's, it's supposed to represent the moment where my dad walks into the room and sees me dressing up as a girl, his little boy dressing up as a girl. Mm -hmm. That happened to you. It didn't happen to me in that way, but there were some clues. I think that my dad discovered before I came out to him as gay. And then eventually before I came out to him as a drag queen, Mm -hmm. um, that led to the same tension of like like feeling caught up or feeling like feeling like I had something to hide okay and that I didn't want him to see I hadn't completely discovered it for myself I wasn't ready to share that with him and so I kind of throw the 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 heels off and I run up to him but he's already walked out of the room and then it takes me into a different like emotion Mm -hmm. we don't need to get into Mm -hmm. the exact specifics of the act but that was one example of a very vulnerable moment whose feeling comes off of a rapport that I have with my lovely family who's loving and supportive, but who I didn't always have the words to describe the weird feelings or the, you know, the quote unquote, the weird feelings, the, Mm -hmm. these new feelings that I was discovering in this, this new level of self-discovery that I was discovering through my drag. So yeah, I, I, and I also made a decision because I knew that the show was being filmed. I made a decision to make every single choice that I made and intend it for the live audience. I didn't care if the promotional material after that act wasn't going to be able to be like as clear, like lighting wise or have Mm. like the best angles for the best tricks or whatever for me to be able to continue on with it. I said, this is my, this is Scarlet Business's at Probes and Sets. This is my Mm. chance to build whatever I want. And I want to give the 100% live version to this audience. And to this day, when people tell me, hey, I saw that show of you at the Tohu. I like almost want to give them a hug because they were a part of the viewers that intended it in the way that it was intended to be, um, to be viewed. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that public. I got nothing but positive feedback from that number and people really understood the, the feelings that I presented. And I also presented it to a lot of families. 
which mm-hmm. is also amazing. Like I remember after the shows, I'd come out and see my friends and there were like little kids and their families there. Mm-hmm. And I find it so huge to be communicating this, this story of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Through my talent and through this corporal language that I've discovered and that, uh, that I, I share my, um, share my passion with through, but in like a completely new lens from a very personal experience that I had the thesis or the, the inspirational sentence behind the act is bury it alive or show it to the world. I think that in the context of the queer experience, there are a lot of queer people out there who have buried versions of themselves in the best interest to move forward in a different way, whether it be performative for someone else, whether it be because they didn't want to show that, whether it be because they were scared to show that. And the number is about that feeling of, I have this thing. I have this feeling, I've had this experience. Do I bury it and tell nobody about it and keep it to myself? Or do I run full speed ahead down that path and become a different version of myself because of something that I'm being drawn to and something that I'm being led to. And in the past, I have buried versions of myself. So like hopping back mm-hmm. to the wanting to present masculine and quote unquote, like not look gay on stage. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't have the capacity or the tools or the experience to completely own up and be like, this is who I am. And if I look this way, that's okay because I'm presenting me 100%. I mm-hmm. buried a side of myself to lean into the masculine mm-hmm. side of who I am. And this was an opportunity for me to do a little bit of of unearthing of that and say, actually, Mm -hmm. hey, this version of myself that I buried back then, this is also present. And I've had time and support to develop this. And this is where I am with this art. And this is where I am in my gender expression. And this is who I am as a person. Scarlet Business is a character, of course, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of her, like you asked, that, that is, there's a lot of me that is injected into her. Like I still am Scarlet Business. She still is me. And so the, that act at the Tohu was an, an example of my drag where it's 100% purely me, like raw feeling and like the way that I describe my gender discovery versus when you see me at Meadow shaking my ass in the thong, which yeah. is like <laughs> this alter ego of like the ultimate femininity, right? That doesn't necessarily represent who I am as a person, but yeah. is a color that I like to, that I like to wear. Yeah. So it feels like he was very therapeutic to build that act and to perform that act for a mainstream audience. It was, it was. And I, I am the type of artist where I don't purely believe in the school of thought that everything that you do on stage should be for yourself. Mm-hmm. There's an audience watching you. So the audience is a really important consideration to take in to the equation that will eventually lead you to the product that you're developing as an mm-hmm. artist. I think it's super important to take that into account. And therefore in my career, especially when I'm working more commercial gigs, you know, I always take into account what tricks are they going to want to see? Like, Oh, people are going to love this. So I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an opportunity in my career where I really got to just think about myself, of course, consider the audience, of course, consider Mm -hmm. the message that I was sending, but really convey the message that I wanted to send in that moment purely for me. And it was more therapeutic than I thought that it would have been. Yeah, for sure. And from, from that moment, how did that performance and that creative process impact your whole, I would say your whole work as an artist? You had this opportunity, so you, you made the best out of it and then you just move on to the next gig or after that performance that kind of like 
changed the way you approach performing on stage, the way you approach your character, your drag character? You know, mama got bills to pay. So of course, <laughs> you know, there is a moment when you finish that contract of like, yep, on to the next one. I have bills yeah, to pay. For sure, yeah. <laughs> two weeks later, actually, the world shut down. This was right before the pandemic. Yeah, it's true. Um, but it was, it actually ended up being a really defining moment. Drag was this taboo thing that I never wanted to do it because I didn't want people to misunderstand me. I felt so misunderstood for so long. And I found mm. this avenue in my career where I was being Kyle and doing my thing. And I was being completely 100% understood in the context of performing on stage. And I was like, are people going to understand this? Like, this is like, this isn't run of the mill, right? Like this is not the norm. This is not the average. Um, and when I presented it to an audience that was ready to see the message that I had to convey in the way that I wanted to convey it, it was a defining moment in my career. And I remember editing the material together and posting it online and thinking, I, I, be I believe, and listeners, let me know, but I believe that I, I actually ended up creating um, a contemporary act that is really the first of its kind. Yeah, with drag, so the way that I used the drag and the way that I told the story, which wasn't a pat on the back thought when I was making it. On the contrary, I watched the video back and went, this was it. That was it. I thought my defining moment was Ovo. I thought my, one of my defining moments was makeup, which it was. But mm -hmm. this is the first time that I had seen the unique mix and crossover of all of my different talents who I am as a person and as an artist, develop a unique piece of art that is a dot on the timeline of, of the circus industry and of the drag industry. I looked back at it and went, oh my God, like I found, I, I found my thing. Like you see all of these successful people, all these CEOs, all of these superstars, they tell you, I was just, I just kept being myself. And anytime that I pretended to be someone else, I had to come back to the things that I felt were most natural to me. And I just had to be me until that right person found me and gave me an opportunity. And then my career, you know, blew up. But then you're trying to pay your bills as, a, as an artist. And you're like, yeah. well, there's some gigs where I don't really get to be myself. I need to be able to interpret this other version of the character. <laughs> like on Ovo and Foot Fabrique, I was playing straight characters, you know, that, that kiss women on stage at some point during mm -hmm. the, the show, right? So it's like, well, I kind of being asked to play someone who's really, I am. There are part <laughs> aspects of my personality, in this, but it's not entirely. And so I felt really proud and went, oh, I never thought. I, I, never, I, I never thought that me finding this unique mix, me, me discovering this, this unique number that I've created that will mm -hmm. have a mark and will make a mark on the circus industry to a certain extent. Yeah, for sure. Um, and even if that's just for myself to be like, I feel like I made a really unique piece and I'm proud of myself for combining everything. It was like one of those surprising moments where I'm like, wow, all of a sudden I ended up with this beautiful product in front of me that I never expected to be created that way just because I was following the things that, that were calling, that were calling me. I followed my heart mm -hmm. to get there. And I got nothing uh, but positive feedback. I was like, oh my God, I poured my heart into this and put it up on a stage, on a big stage to be judged. Yeah, and it was sure. like met with this amazing response. And so what, what would be the, um, the advices that you would want to give to like newcomers, artists, people who are maybe having issues 
finding themselves as people and uh, as artists too. There's a lot of factors that come into this. This is like a really deep, serious um, subject. Life is so crazy. Trying to discover who you are as a person, trying to discover who you are as a professional in your career. There's so many different factors that can come into play as you're trying to navigate um, your environments moving forward as a person. I think my first piece of advice would be to take a deep breath. You're okay, right? Like, especially for, like, I think of the kids who are going through circus school. It's like, you're in North America, you're safe. You have a warm place to sleep. You have food on the table. You probably are surrounded by great friends or like-minded people if you're like in a circus school, say, for example, mm -hmm. or somewhere I hope that you have some level of support system. So take a deep breath and, and lean on them. In my times of darkness, in my times of struggle, I had to go to my biggest supporters, my biggest fans, my greatest friends who knew me sometimes better than I knew myself. And just whether it was asking for a specific piece of advice, asking for a hand to hold, or just asking for an ear to listen, just, just borrow their ear for a second to hear what I'm going through. I think that's the, the first step of advice that I would take is don't feel like you have to do it all alone. It takes a village. It takes a village for, for everyone. And as a circus artist, I think it's one of the biggest um, lessons that I've actually learned. I've, I've, I've always been, you get this intimidating feeling sometimes when you see amazing art in front of you. And someone's telling you, like you're on the same contract as someone. Someone's telling you, oh, you're on that level. And you're like, am I? I don't really feel that way. Because you're so appreciative yeah. of their art in a way that you could never be appreciative of your own because you're the creator of your mm -hmm. own, right? You know all of the secrets about your own art. And I sometimes feel the pressure, feel like, oh my gosh, like I feel like now I need to go and make a new act and I have to do it by myself. And, you know, I'm a soloist, I'm alone on stage. Da, 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 and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't do anything by yourself. You don't do anything by yourself. Nobody does anything by themselves. They have yeah, teams. This is true. And so my, which leads me to my, my real piece of advice, which is no matter who you are, what you want to do, listen to the things that your heart is telling you. They are important. Your intuition is an amazing guiding tool for who you are as a human. And remember to surround yourself with people who lift you up and who can see you for who you truly are and who can envision a version of yourself that you would never be able to see. I know that like objectively, that's kind of hard to surround yourself with those kind of people. Like, so your vision of me, like, do you see it? You know, different than I do. Yeah. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Surround yourself with people that are hardworking and who love you and who support you. And who and belie believe in you, maybe. That's what you're trying who to say. That who believe that you can be who you want to be. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly the word that I'm looking for, actually. Who believe in you. And when you're going through, through a, a hard time or times of self-doubt, because that's human, we all experience that. Even your greatest heroes. I have met some of my greatest heroes in my life. And the most amazing part about meeting your heroes, some people say never meet your heroes, which I, I get where that comes from. But on the contrary, actually, the most amazing part of meeting my heroes is learning how they're human. Mm -hmm. Learning that they experience the same feelings and the same feelings of self-doubt, of self-loathing that I experience as an artist also it, from mm -hmm. time to time, right? Or experience other hardships in life that are similar to my own. So just remember, we're all human. We're all there. And we've all leaned on our support systems and 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 our communities at times of need and it's okay for you to do it too mm. and when you get out of it keep pushing to the next step 
to become the most unique version of yourself. I know it's so much easier said than done. And like I said, the Scarlet Act, the Scarlet Contemporary Drag Act was a moment where I was like, I always heard this advice and never knew how to do it. Like, yeah. how am I supposed to be the successful, unique version of myself when there's all of these standards that have to constantly be met in this industry that I'm working in? Mm-hmm. And through being myself and listening to my heart, people who saw my potential were there at the right time, ready to give me an opportunity that kickstarted my growth into a person and into an artist that I wasn't able to see in that moment. Cause you're too present in your own, in your own environment. So anyway, yeah. the advice is <laughs> believe in yourself, trust your intuition and lean on your support system. It takes a village. You're not alone in this world. Uh, so I even if you that. feel like it, remember that you're not, I promise you're not send me a message. Hell send me a DM. <laughs> Cause I, I love it. So. Okay. Then one last question. One last question. Yes. If tomorrow aliens would land on Earth, how would you explain Cirque du Soleil to them? I love that this is the question that you ask everybody. Yeah. <laughs> It's so amazing. I was like listening to some of the other podcasts and I was like, how am I going to answer this question? <laughs> um, so I have a two-part answer. All right, go for it. First part technically is Cirque du Soleil is one of the biggest entertainment brands in the world. And it is an incredible stunning and moving combination of the scenic arts. Mm-hmm. That's how I would, that's how I would describe Cirque du Soleil. It's this combination of all of the scenic arts at a production level that is just grandiose. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And the second thing that I would tell them about Cirque du Soleil, because of course, I have to keep chatting and, and let them know a little bit of my personal experience because I can never <laughs> shut the hell up. I mean, we've been talking for like almost two hours now. I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, the second thing that I would tell them is that Cirque du Soleil was Cirque du Soleil was the open door that led me to my path of becoming an artist. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's a great, great answer. Two parts answer. Amazing. Technically, it's like I have to describe what all of, you know, the music and the lights are first, but also <laughs> what Cirque du Soleil really is, in my experience, is the catalyst, the, the starting point of this incredible artistic journey and amazing career that I've had thus far. Nice. I'm sure aliens will be stoked by your definition. Let's <laughs> <laughs> do show right now. Yeah, right, right now. Cirquesolet.com <laughs> slash. Well, man, thank you so much for taking time in your time off to come and chat with me. I honestly love your story. I think there is so much that can inspire so many people on so many different levels. And I also want to thank you for pushing the boundaries in the performing arts because I think it's, it's something that every artist likes to believe about themselves like oh i'm pushing the boundaries but i don't think everybody truly does but i think you truly did so i wanted to say thank you for doing this thank you thank you for being a supportive part of my audience pushing i i mean in pushing i guess the circus boundaries like i'm i'm pushing myself to be the most authentic version of myself right like i'm pushing myself to be happy and create the art that i love and it can be really challenging and hard sometimes when you're like for I don't sure really have any examples to go off of like what do I do mm-hmm. so I also just feel really grateful to have a support system that has that has built a nest for me 
to be able to grow in that way. And you're definitely a part of that. So thanks mm. for having me and letting me share my story. It's an incredible opportunity. Thank you. I'll say enjoy your break, relax. And uh, I can't wait to see you again rocking the stage. Thanks. One day in the future, we'll see where it is. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. What a guy, huh? Pushing the limits and breaking down barriers like he does is truly remarkable. It's like his creative power has no limits. So inspiring. If you enjoyed this episode, you can now take a little moment to give us a good rating and review. It really makes a difference for Tapis Rouge. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CircusTalk.com or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Now my friends, that's it for today. Have a good day, a good show if you have to perform, rock the casbah, and you know, as we say in the circus, see you down the road. <laughs>